0: We first and foremost have to come to it knowing that the scriptures are revealing God. There are opportunities to read what he wrote about himself to be revealed to us. We also have to approach the scriptures seeking to hear him, see him as we read I said, this, this differs from looking just to know the rules and seeing the way that he says things ought to be, but trying to find out who he is. As we find out who he is, we'll understand the ways that he does things, we'll understand how he operates, because we'll know him in this case, rather than just trying to know the rules and not knowing the one who wrote them. So here's, here's how I see this. Um, again, I'm going to get sidetracked. When you encounter someone who knows the Bible really well, but they don't know God, they're like the ones in 1 Corinthians 13 who lack love. They sound like a clanging gong. They're telling everyone all the things that they shouldn't be doing, and they're right. That's the problem that we have. That oftentimes when you... Let's just... We'll just get right into it. Let's just say there's a street preacher, okay? And nobody likes street preachers because they make all of us blush, right? And these guys get up, and oftentimes their message is repent, which is right. It's everybody has sinned, is in need of Jesus, wicked, fallen short. All of these things are true, but often it comes out of a, this is what the Bible says and not a knowledge of God. Because a knowledge of God presents those truths and those realities with a heart that desires for this person to receive mercy and be restored. Whereas often what we see in a street preacher is they're saying all those things, but they're not really looking for restoration. They're looking to bring offense, And that's the difference. When we go to the scripture looking to know the rules, we'll come across as a clanging gong rather than one who's seeking mercy. Now, with that said, the gospel still offends. And the gospel will still cause people to uh, foam with, with, at the mouth with hatred. However, it's very important that the things that we declare come out of the place of the knowledge of God rather than just the knowledge of the rules. When we read the Bible seeking to know God, it will lead us into an encounter with Him. In an encounter with God, we find out who He is. We find out about His mercy, about His love, about His grace. And as we become acquainted with these things, we understand that His ways and His message and His rules are all saturated with his love and his mercy and his goodness and his justice and his grace. That's what's so interesting about when you contrast someone who knows God and someone who just knows what the Bible says, they could be saying the same words, but the message that's declared is very, very different between the two. And that's what Paul is referring to when he talks about a clanging gong. Paul was declaring the same message of repentance, and yet when it comes from him, it's, it's saturated in mercy and in love and in grace and in goodness. And when it's declared over here, it's just banging, smashing, and it's, it's not really producing much good for Um, I'm going to get sidetracked again for a minute. So right now, um, there's this thing in the culture that Christians, you either have to be loving and merciful, or you have to be a, an activist, and you speak out on issues. But you can't do both when a Christian speaks out on issues that are happening in our society, they're written off as someone who's actually loving and caring and merciful and tender because they've taken a stand on issues. And yet again, when you look at the scripture, Jesus does both, Paul does both, and we're expected to do both. And that's why it's really important that we look at the Bible and we try to come to know God that we look at the whole counsel of scripture rather than just portions because it's by cherry picking portions that we come to conclusions that you either have to be an activist or just someone who loves people and cares for people the whole counsel of scripture makes it very clear that God expects us to do both because he did both and you'll, you'll understand a little bit more here in a little bit what I'm talking about Also, when we read the scripture, I'm just trying to grab some pitfalls and try to avoid some of them here. So, when we get into the Bible, a lot of the time, and I catch myself doing this regularly, I'll find myself reading the Bible, and I want to hear God speak to me about me. And while this is good, it's really good to find yourself in the scripture, find God speaking to you in the scripture, find him saying things about you in the scripture, Our priority should be going into the Word, listening for Him to tell us things about Him. Because it's when we hear Him speak about who He is that we truly come to understand who we are as well. It's the knowledge of God, it's in the knowledge of God that our confidence and security lies. We will grow in confidence and security in who we are when we come to know who He is better. So, while I encourage you when you're reading the Bible, listen and watch for ways that God might be talking to you about you. Um, Most of my close friends have gotten lifelong callings out of reading the scripture, and God highlights something and goes, This is you. This is who you will be throughout your lifetime. And that's outstanding. And yet, don't stop looking for God to say, this is who I am. When he says, this is who I am, much more firmly do we understand what we're about, where we're going, and who we get to be. This is, um, probably all of you guys do this, but I'm just going to say it. Uh, ask questions when you read the Bible of God. So, when you're reading through the Scripture, ask Him questions when you come across things that you don't understand or you're wondering about. Or when you go into the Scripture, have questions in your heart about, God, I really need to understand this. Why did you do this? What is this about? This doesn't make sense. He's an interactive God. He speaks to us. When we get into the Scripture, ask Him questions about what you're reading. I think, you know, a lot of times um, we talk about God and we don't, well, he doesn't speak all the time or all that often. I think he speaks more often than we think he does, and I think that those who think he speaks more frequently hear him more frequently. Um, So, okay, so what is the full counsel of Scripture? Scripture. Um, Well, it's that which is lacking in the theology of too many American Christians. Uh, But that's not its definition. The whole counsel of Scripture is, what does the entire Bible say about God or about an issue? Why is this important? Well to to illustrate why this is so important we're going to look at a few what i've called snapshots of god in the bible and and as we go through these you're going to understand why one you can't create formulas can't do it and two you can't cherry pick when we're trying to know who god is and what he's like and what he feels about certain things and three you're going to find out why it's so important to understand all of scripture and not just uh, certain parts like the red letters. So, first one I want to look at is the woman caught in adultery. You guys know this story? the story? woman caught in adultery, there's a, a woman, she's uh, been caught in adultery, and they bring her before Jesus, and they throw her on the ground, and they're going to stone her with rocks. Not, they're going to stone her, they're going to kill her. And so they throw her out by Jesus expecting him to participate and he stops them and the famous words of let him who is without sin cast the first stone and then he turns to the woman at, and, and she looks up at him and she's got tears in his eyes her eyes she's still a girl and she's expecting him and everyone else to have crushed her because she knows that's what the law says she has coming She knows this is what she deserves because she is caught in the act. And she looks up at Jesus and he says, where have your accusers gone? There's none left. And he says to her, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And we get this amazing picture of the mercy of God. Jesus, remember, is the full manifestation of the Father. So when we see Jesus we see the Father, right? That's what he said to Thomas. You've know, you seen me, you've seen the Father. So here we get this picture of Jesus and his mercy, and yet at the same time, he's telling this woman, go and sin no more. He doesn't say, go back to the bed in which you were dragged from. He says, go and sin no more. So he's not condoning her act in this moment, which is what's usually labeled with this situation. Rather, he's giving her mercy when she knows she deserves death. And in that moment of mercy, he tells her, now go and stop doing this. Change the way that you're living. Incredible moment of mercy, right? If you understood the severity of sin and how it was viewed in Jewish culture, and in God's eyes, I guess, would be a fair way to say it, we would understand the enormity of this moment. But because we've so minimized the destructiveness of sin, we don't grasp the enormity of this moment where Jesus offers her mercy. That's unfortunate, but it's something that we should try to uh, work to reestablish in our hearts. So here's this moment of incredible mercy. Here's a moment in the Old Testament where uh, Sodom is destroyed, an entire city is completely destroyed in the judgment of God. So here you have a woman who was caught in adultery and Jesus offers her mercy. Here you have an entire city, an entire populace that's completely wiped out in the judgment of God. This was just, and this was just. The Lord of Heaven's armies, you guys remember this scene where Joshua, they're about to go fight the Battle of Jericho, and uh, um, he's confronted by a man with a sword drawn, and Joshua approaches him. And you can see, you know, Joshua, the leader of the people, approaches this man. Whose side are you on? Who are you for? Us or them? Neither. But I am the Lord of heaven's armies. And Joshua throws himself on the ground, and he realizes, I need to be on your side. Not you on my side. I'm going to get sidetracked for a second here. One thing that I see happening right now, um, because everybody's so politically aware, which is great, we should be politically involved and politically aware. However, what what you see is a definition of political parties according to um, faith. So what do I mean by this? Um, as soon as you start to describe Christianity, somebody goes, oh you're a Republican, or oh you're a libertarian, or oh that's garbage it's not the Christian's responsibility to become a political party, it's a political party's responsibility to position themselves on the side of Christianity this is what Joshua was confronted with, it would have been the equivalent of the Lord of Heaven's armies standing here, and Joshua's going, hey, are you a Republican or a Democrat? And he goes, neither. You need to pick if you're going to be on my side or not. Likewise, when you look at the political situations that are happening, these political parties that are forming in our country, they need to decide if they're going to do things in God's way. It's not about Christians picking a political party. It's about a political party picking if they're going to abide by God's laws or by their own. So here is the, the, uh, the, the Lord of Heaven's armies with his sword drawn. He's going to go to battle. Joshua gets on his side. They obviously win the battle at Jericho. <clears throat> Here's another scene that's a little bit different. Jesus is born on the earth, the living God is born on the earth as a baby in a manger, no castle, no fanfare, and when he's born, it's declared by the angels that there uh, is meant to be peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So the last two pictures that we looked at were the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Justly destroyed. We also talked about the Lord of Heaven's armies, right? And Joshua positioning himself on the side of the Lord of Heaven's armies and Jericho being destroyed. Now we have angels declaring that Jesus coming to earth is for the sake of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. In the Song of Songs, it, uh, or Song of Solomon, whichever, if you're KJV or ESV, um, the scripture says that he delights in us, that one look of our eye ravishes his heart. Incredible picture. That when we look at him, his heart is stirred and moved with emotion. Just when we stop from our day and take a moment to look and say, oh, I love you. His heart is moved with desire. It's kind of an incredible thought when we talk about pursuing God because I think we get tempted to think that we're chasing him more than he's chasing us. And it's not the case at all. When we stop to look, he's moved and drawn to us with desire. He's moved when we speak Our prayer causes him to act. It's kind of a mind blowing reality. Then there's another contrasting picture to that when um, God is about to bring the flood and it says that he was grieved that he had made man. How do you reconcile those? You see why you can't cherry-pick? We can't can't cherry-pick one story out of Scripture and say this is the way God is. We have to look at the whole counsel of Scripture. What about the passage so often quoted now, do not judge and you will not be judged. I'd argue and have argued that this may be the most often and abused, misused, in the Bible because it's not not what Jesus is saying if you read the rest of the passage it's crystal clear that's not what he's saying if you jump to Matthew 18 when Jesus says if your brother sins against you this is what you do you go and confront him and you show him his sin and if he doesn't listen you go get another brother and the two of you show him his sin and then you get the church And you show him his sin. That doesn't sound like what we're told, do not judge and you will not be judged, means. And it's because it's not only misused, but it's also cherry-picked, and it's neglecting the whole counsel of Scripture. There's a picture, you know, Jesus is the one who says, let the little children come unto me. And he's sitting, right? And the disciples are trying to keep the kids back, and he's like, no. Send the kids to me. I love the children. Send the little ones to me. And they come running, and you can picture them climbing all over them. And And then contrast that, not really contrast, but a totally different picture, is the Revelation 19 Jesus. He's seated on a white horse. He's coming back to judge the earth. His robe is dipped in blood, and he's coming to execute the wrath of God. When we're told that Jesus is completely anti-violence, the only way that we can do that is if we leave out a large portion of what he said in entire books of the Bible about what he's doing And going to do like the book of Revelation for example he will not be made into a formula he will not he is the living God and he will not be made into a formula so when when you look at all these things in the Bible, and these are just a few stories. I mean, I'm just like tossing out a little handful of stories. The contrasts, yeah? They're incredible, aren't they? I mean, Jesus did this, and then he went over here and did this. Jesus, he's so merciful, and he's tender, and he's caring for the children, and he's loving, and he's forgiving the wicked, and he's going after the leper, and he's caring for Zacchaeus, the wicked tax collector. Yeah? Yeah? Zacchaeus, the wicked tax collector. What about Jesus in the temple flipping the table and driving them out with whips? Contrast. He's not a formula. And we need all of the scripture to know who he is. He's revealed in it. The other amazing thing that I have to say is God's attributes are never in conflict with one another. His mercy and his justice are never in conflict with one another. He's not in inner turmoil. Going, oh, uh, do I give him a hug or do I squash him? He's not in turmoil. Ever. So when you see the Sodom and Gomorrah God... And then you see the woman caught in adultery, God, he's not in inner turmoil. It's all a natural outflow of who he is. And when we look to the whole counsel of Scripture, we find that the God that it points to is far more complex and yet understandable to mere mere humans, dull though we may be, like us. We have to be really, really careful right now, particularly, that we don't get dragged into one of these current theological movements that's trying to define Jesus and the way Christianity should be by a few isolated incidents that happened in the Bible. You've got, man, I get so frustrated right now because you have Christian writers who are attempting to trump the whole counsel of Scripture in blogs about the way God is. And t- the only way you could possibly come up with this is by neglecting three-quarters of the scripture. We'll take 60% of the stuff that was written in red, and we'll call that good, and now we can define Jesus. And we cannot get dragged into that, guys. We have to have more wisdom than this. what's actually happening and it's terrifying that in the church Christians, authors, speakers, bloggers they're creating gods of their own making. They're taking parts of the Bible and they're piecing these parts of the Bible together and they're creating gods in their own making that are their idols and they're they're impotent. And when the living God returns on that white horse there's gonna be tremendous offense in the church because of this. Scripture talks about a a great falling away that happens uh, near the end of the age. There's a tremendous deception that comes into the church and there's a great falling away and the love of many will grow cold. The Bible says that and it's even in the red letter part. So everybody should know that's true. And yet in spite of this, there's a movement in the church that's leading to greater and greater and greater deception. And what it's going to bring about is when Jesus moves and he starts to come back toward his people and he starts to revive his people, many, many, many people within the church are going to be offended and turned off because of the way that he's doing it. And they're going to say, God could never do that. He would never do that. It wasn't in the six chapters that were written in red that I like. So it can't be him. We have to be really, really careful any time we try to use absolutes about God and what he will or will not do. We cannot allow ourselves to begin to make a God of our own creation, by taking parts of the scripture that we like. When we come to the Bible, we must come before the whole Bible, even the difficult parts. We don't need to change it, we don't need to apologize it for it, and we don't need to run from it, because God is revealed in it, and God is good. minutes to get distracted again. I talked about the political thing earlier. There's a... um, Everybody politicizes the statements of Christians right now. Um, And it's turned into a political motive. And that's garbage. And what we have to do is make a very conscious attempt to Anytime we make a statement, a declaration about something, and someone tries to suck us into as though we're making a political statement, we need to reject that. Like I said, it's the political party's responsibility to get right with God. With that aside, it's our responsibility to be the voice of eternal truth. God is an eternal God. He's relevant in every season. He's relevant in every century. And it's our responsibility to be the voice of eternal truth. And it's the culture, it doesn't matter if it's the medieval times, it doesn't matter if it's 400 B.C. or 2,500 A.D. It's the culture's responsibility to come into line with what God says. But it's our job just to declare the truth. This is what God says. Guys, it's not our job to necessarily be against everything. We just have to be for the truth. And when we're declaring what God says, it becomes very evident what's not God's and what he is not for. It's not that you have to be afraid of of speaking against things. You don't. But be willing to define what God says he is for in the way that things are intended to be. It's the church's job to be the conscience to the state. But again, it's the state's job to come into alignment with God and his ways. And it's not that Christianity is endorsing one party or another. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We're declaring eternal truths, and these political parties need to sort out where they're going to stand in regard to those truths. One step further, we're never promised popularity, ever, in the Bible. It, it, it's just not there, guys. We can't find it. So, to expect that all of our views are going to be popular, and we're always going to be popular, is, is really, it's foolishness. You know, you're, we're just setting ourselves up for, for disappointment. Um, It's our job to be faithful, not popular. And the really good news is that, and this is where I think some confusion comes in, I think everybody in this room would love to see all right with the world, everything right with the world. Everybody in the room would love to see everyone they know right with God, forgiven, receiving mercy, grace, forgiveness we want people saved I don't really feel like this is a group of people who's going out looking to condemn everyone they know Um, the problem though is guys that it's not our popularity and it's not our friendships with people that's going to get them introduced to God people don't get converted or born from above because we're popular liked or friends with them That happens because the Spirit of God penetrates their cold, dead heart and revives it and gives them new life. And we don't need to be popular for that to happen. What's incredible throughout the Scripture is you have these moments where someone is horribly unpopular in one moment. You guys remember what happened on the day of Pentecost? Remember, they're all gathered in a room, and the Holy Spirit comes, right? And, you know, tongues of, tongues of fire and different languages. And, and, and then Peter gets up and speaks, and was it 3,000 or 5,000? 3,000 were added to their number that day. Do you remember that? You guys remember that? Come on, somebody remembers that. It's like what everybody hopes for for their first sermon, right? Do you remember why they were all gathered together in that one place? They're waiting. They were hiding as well. They were hiding. Because you couldn't be a Christian. They were scared and they were waiting because they had nothing else they could do. And you go from being a terrified, unpopular, running for your life coward waiting in an upper room, begging God to show up, to the popular leader of the church in an instant. And it wasn't because P- Peter got popular or really good looking all of a sudden. <laughs> it was because the Spirit of God moved. You guys, we do not need to be popular. We do not need to be widely accepted. And our message does not need to be popular or widely accepted because it's not about us that gets people into the kingdom. It's about a supernatural work of the Spirit of God who births a dead heart and brings it to life. What a relief. It takes the pressure off of us. It's not our job to get it done. I've just got to be faithful. If I can be faithful, God is going to do what He is going to do. And He will revive hearts as He sees fit. And we can all hope we get Peter's home run shot. You know. I also want to say... We shouldn't be afraid of people's questions and people's challenges. We shouldn't be afraid of their accusations and their mockery either. You don't ever have to be afraid when someone's asking questions. Sometimes people are sincere and sometimes they're not, but we never need to be afraid of their questions. Why? If I know God, if I've met God, and I know what he says about something, I can be really secure That he is who he says he is. And the things that he says he's about, he's about. And someone's questions aren't going to change that. They really can't threaten that. If Alex comes up to me afterwards and he says, I don't think you're a 34-year-old man. I'm not going to get too flustered about his questions because I'm very certain that I'm a 34-year-old man. And Alex can laugh at me, he can mock me, he can tell me all the reasons that he has for proof that I'm actually a 27-year-old goat. And it doesn't matter because I know what the truth is. I know it. Likewise with the scripture, You don't ever have to feel threatened when someone starts asking questions. The hope is that they will come to a knowledge of the truth. But it has much less to do about your responses than it does about their pursuit of truth. If someone's heart is pursuing truth, your wrong answers aren't going to distract them. Because truth is a man, his name is Jesus. It's not a right answer. So when people start asking questions and accusing us and mocking us, you really have nothing to be afraid of. You don't need to feel threatened. It doesn't change what the truth is, who the truth is, and that you are in him. And I just say that because you should have a lot of people around you that are asking questions. So when we see in the Bible the different actions and attributes of God, we should ask Him, God, what does this tell me about who you are? God, how in the world can you be like this to the woman caught in adultery, and yet wh- over here you got a whole city of people, and you're just like, boom, gone. Oh, and then Saul's, uh, uh, Lot's wife, she turned around, so pow, pillar of salt. Why? God, I don't get it. Ask him. He's not afraid of our questions. He wants to be known. That means that he's going to explain to us when we ask. When you go back and you look at the different snapshots that we talked about a few minutes ago, what does each of them tell me about God? They all reconcile inside of who he is. What does that tell me about him? The last thing I want to say about reading the Bible is find people that you trust to discuss it with, to get into it with. I think that a lot of uh, revelation or eye opening moments or whoa moments happen when we discuss what the Bible says with other people. That's why we have Bible studies. It's not just to get together and go through the verses and let someone read out of a commentary. It's so that we can wrestle through together what is God saying to you about who He is when you read this passage. Ask questions. It's amazing to me how rare how rarely I hear about a leader who knows the Scripture so well being asked questions about what the Scripture says. Incredible. We've all got it figured out. No, it's... We don't read the Bible expecting that anyone can help us know who God is in it. Some of my most enjoyable memories are from a few years ago being in the coffee house with, you know, Cody and and some of these other guys, and there's guys yelling back and forth across the room at each other about what they see in a certain passage of the scripture. Um, I remember one time, this guy who was, at the time, supposedly really soft-spoken, really kind of a conservative fellow. No one had ever seen him get excited about much of anything. And uh, he'd been out camping um, by himself for like 36 hours. He just went out in the woods with a sleeping day, and um, we were meeting over here on a Thursday night, and uh, the rest of us were all in the room, and he wasn't there, and we knew he was out in the woods, and all of a sudden, the door smashes open, and he starts screaming, it's tongues of fire from heaven, and we were just like, whoa, we need a little buffer, just give us like five to ten seconds to get in the room. <laughs> And a couple of months later I remember this same guy he'd gone through this complete personality transformation as, as he encountered God and him and his little brother who was visiting were standing in the room and they're yelling back and forth at each other about this passage in Acts. And I just don't hear about that anymore. I hope that you have people around you that you get into the Word of God with and you wrestle through it with. That you really go after it. What is this about? What is going on in here? Who is this God who would say such a thing? Ask questions. Ask your friends. Ask people that you trust. Get into the Bible Find things that you don't understand and begin asking questions because God will reveal Himself in it. It is the glory of God to hide a matter, to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. It's really important, I'm going to close with this. It's really important as we press in to know God that we do not neglect the Scripture. We have the Bible. You can buy them anywhere and everywhere. And most of us have more Bibles than we could ever open or read in a lifetime. And yet, we oftentimes neglect it. Even when we're really chasing after God, the one thing we'll usually neglect is the Scripture. So, when we first started SLM, we had everyone committed to a minimum of an hour where they would read the Bible and pray every day. And for whatever reason, we stopped requiring all that stuff of people. And people complained because it was so difficult. And um, discipline's hard, you know, and life is work. And that's uncomfortable. And so no one wanted to be encumbered by these requirements, awful as they were praying and reading the Bible for an hour. Um, But I think we've really lost our zeal for the Scripture. I think we've really lost the joy that's found when you're reading the Bible and something comes alive and your heart jumps in your chest and you go, there are few things as cool as the moment where God opens your eyes to something you've read 40 times. You've read it, you learned it at Awana. You memorized it, and then you ran laps around the church and got your gold crown at Awana because you knew the verse. And then 20 years later, he turns your heart on and your mind on to what it really means. It's so thrilling. I'm convinced that if, if we were able to live out the fullness of one verse one verse and all that it means in our lives we'd be extraordinarily great in the sight of God something so simple as you're born from above when we get into the Bible it grounds us in who God really is and what he really says. And when we look at the whole counsel of Scripture, it allows us to really come to know all of his personality and not just the parts that are culturally popular and acceptable. And as you start to pursue him in emotional ways, and, and that's great, and you pursue him in worship, and that's great, and desperation, and that's great, don't neglect the word of God. It will be the foundation of your life. So we're going to pray and then uh, call it a night. Father, thank you that we have your word, that we have your scripture, that you wrote it. You wrote it that when we read it and we look to you to know you, that you would reveal yourself in it. Not everyone has the privilege that we do to to have such easy access to to the Bible. Lord, don't let us get into a place where it's taken away from us before we realize it's precious. Father, when we get into the Word, help us to see You. Give us a grace to see You. But as importantly... Give us discipline to be there every day. To read it. To take the time to get away from the distractions. To get into the quiet. And sit with you and read your word. In hopes that we might meet with you there. And find who you are. Reveal yourself to us in your word, Father. We love you. We love you. Amen.